Chapter Twelve of Clementina. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Clementina by A. E. W. Mason. Chapter Twelve. The Night of the Twenty Seventh in the Streets of Innsbruck. In fact, just about the time when the prince's horses were being unharnessed from his carriage on the heights of Mount Brenner, the hired carriage stopped before a little inn under the town wall of Innsbruck, hard by the bridge and half an hour later when the prince was sitting down to his supper before a blazing fire and thanking his stars that on so gusty and wild a night he had a stout roof above his head a man and a woman came out from the little tavern under the town wall and disappeared into the darkness they had the streets to themselves for that night the city was a whirlpool of the winds each separate chasm in the encircling hills was a mouth to discharge a separate blast the winds swept down into the hollow and charged in a riotous combat about the squares and lanes at each corner was an ambuscade and everywhere they clashed with artilleries of hail and sleet the man and woman staggered hand in hand and floundered in the deep snow they were soaked to the skin frozen by the cold and whipped by the stinging hail though they bent their heads and bodies though they clung hand in hand though they struggled with all their strength there were times when they could not advance a foot and must needs wait for a lull in the shelter of a porch at such times the man would perhaps quote a line of virgil about the cave of the winds and the woman curse like a grenadier they however were not the only people who were distressed by the storm outside the villa in which the princess was imprisoned stood the two sentinels one beneath the window the other before the door there were icicles upon their beards they were so shrouded in white they had the look of snowmen built by schoolboys their coats of frieze could not keep out the searching sleet nor their caps protect their ears from the intolerable cold their hands were so numbed they could not feel the muskets they held the sentinel before the door suffered the most for whereas his companion beneath the window had nothing but the house wall before his eyes he on his part could see on the other side of the alley of trees the red blinds of the white chamois that inn which the chevalier de st george had mentioned to charles wogan the red blinds shone very cheery and comfortable upon that stormy night the sentinel envied the men gathered in the warmth and light behind them and cursed his own miserable lot as heartily as the woman in the porch did hers the red blinds made it unendurable he left his post and joined his companion rudolph he said bawling into his ear come with me our birds will not fly away to-night the two sentries came to the front of the house and stared at the red-litten blinds what a night cried rudolph not a citizen would thrust his nose out of doors not even the little chateau doux sweetheart replied the other with a grin they stared again at the red blinds and in a lull of the wind a clock struck nine there's an hour before the magistrate comes said rudolph you take that hour said his companion i will have the hour after the magistrate has gone rudolph ran across to the inn the sentinel at the door remained behind both men were pleased rudolph because he had his hour immediately his fellow-soldier because once the magistrate had come and gone he would take as long as he pleased meanwhile the man and woman hand in hand drew nearer to the villa but very slowly 
for apart from the weather's hindrances the woman's anger had grown she stopped she fell down when there was no need to fall she wept she struggled to free her hand and finally when they had taken shelter beneath a portico she sank down on the stone steps and with many oaths and many tears refused to budge a foot strangely enough it was not so much the inclemency of the night or the danger of the enterprise which provoked this obstinacy as some outrage and dishonour to her figure you may talk all night she cried between her sobs about o'toole and his beautiful german they can go hang for me i am only a servant i know i am poor i admit it but poverty isn't a crime it gives no one the right to make a dwarf of me no no this as wogan bent down to lift her from the ground plague on you all i will sit here and die and when i am found frozen and dead perhaps you will be sorry for your cruelty to a poor girl who wanted nothing better than to serve you here jenny was so moved by the piteousness of her fate that her tears broke out again she wept loudly wogan was in an extremity of alarm lest someone should pass or the people of the house be aroused he tried most tenderly to comfort her she would have none of the consolations he took her in his arms and raised her to her feet she swore more loudly than she had wept she kicked at his legs she struck at his head with her fist in another moment she would surely have cried murder wogan had to let her sink back upon the steps where she fell to whimpering i am not beautiful i know i never boasted that i was but i have a figure and limbs that a painter would die to paint and what do you make of me a maggot a thing all body like a nasty bear oh curse the day that i set out with such tyrants a pretty figure of fun i should make before your beautiful german covered with mud to the knees no you shall hang me first why couldn't o'toole do his own work the ninny i hate him he's tall enough the great donkey but no i must do it who am shorter and even then not short enough for him and you but you must drag me through the dirt without heels wogan let her run on he was at his wit's end what to do all this turmoil these tears these oaths and blows came from nothing more serious than this that jenny to make her height less remarkable must wear no heels it was ludicrous it was absurd but none the less the whole expedition carried to the very point of completion must fail utterly and irretrievably fail because jenny would not for one day go without her heels the princess must remain in her prison at innsbruck the chevalier must lose his wife the exertions of wogan and his friends their risks their ingenuity must bear no fruit because jenny would not show herself three inches short of her ordinary height o'toole had warned him there would be a difficulty but that the difficulty should become an absolute hindrance should spoil a scheme of so much consequence that was inconceivable yet there was jenny sobbing her heart out on the steps not half a mile from the villa the minutes were passing the inconceivable thing was true wogan could have torn his hair in the rage of his despair he could have laughed out loudly and passionately until even on that stormy night he brought the guard he thought of the perils he had run the difficulties he had surmounted he had outwitted the countess de berg and lady featherstone he had persuaded the reluctant prince sobieski he had foiled his enemies on the road to schlestadt he had made his plans he had gathered his friends he had crept out with them from strasbourg 
yet in the end they had come to Innsbruck to be foiled because Jenny would not go without her heels. Wogan could have wept like Jenny, but he did not. On the contrary, he sat down by her side on the steps and took her hand, gentle as a sheep. "'You are in the right of it, Jenny,' said he, in a most remorseful voice. Jenny looked up. "'Yes,' he continued, "'I was in the wrong. O'Toole is the most selfish man in the whole world. Cowardly, too. But there never was a selfish man who was not at heart a bit of a coward. Sure enough, sooner or later the cowardice comes out.' It is a preposterous thing that O'Toole should think that you and I are going to rescue his heiress for him while he sits at his ease by the inn fire. No, let us go back to him and tell him to his face the selfish, cowardly man he is. It seemed, however, that Jenny was not entirely pleased to hear her own sentiments so frankly uttered by Mr. Wogan. Besides, he seemed to exaggerate them, for she said with a little reluctance, "'I would not say that he was a coward.' "'But I would,' exclaimed Wogan hotly. "'Moreover, I do. "'With all my heart I say it. "'A great lubberly monster of a coward. "'He is envious, too, Jenny.' "'Jenny had by this time stopped weeping. "'Why envious?' she asked, "'with an accent of rebellion "'which was very much to Wogan's taste. "'It's as plain as the palm of my hand. "'Why should he make a dwarf of you, Jenny?' "'for it's the truth he has done that. "'He has made a little dwarf out of the finest girl in the land "'by robbing her of her heels.' "'Jenny was on the point of interrupting with some indignation, "'but Wogan would not listen to her. "'A dwarf,' he continued. "'It was your own word, Jenny. "'I could say nothing to comfort you when you spoke of it, "'for it was so true and suitable an epithet. "'A little dwarf he has made of you, "'all body and no legs like a bear, "'a dwarf bear, of course.' "'And why, if it is not that he envies you your figure "'and is jealous of it in a mean and discreditable way? "'Sure he wants to have all the looks "'and to appear quite incomparable to the eyes of his beautiful German. "'So he makes a dwarf of you, a little bare dwarf.' "'Jenny, however, had heard this phrase often enough by now. "'She interrupted Wogan hotly, "'and it seemed her anger was now as much directed against him "'as it had been before against O'Toole.' "'He is not envious,' said she. "'A fine friend he has in you, I am thinking. "'He has no need to be envious. "'Captain O'Toole could carry me to the house in his arms if he wished, "'which is more than you could do if you tried till midday to-morrow.' "'And she turned her shoulder to Wogan, "'who, in no way abashed by her contempt, cried triumphantly. "'But he didn't wish. "'He let you drag through the mud and snow "'without so much as a patent to keep you off the ground.' "'Why? Tell me that, Jenny. Why didn't he wish?' Jenny was silent. "'You see, if he is not envious, he is at all events a coward,' argued Wogan, "'else he would have run his own risks and come in your stead.' "'But that would not have served,' cried Jenny. It was her turn now to speak triumphantly. "'How could O'Toole have run away with his heiress "'and at the same time remained behind in her bed to escape suspicion as I am to do?' "'I had forgotten that, to be sure,' said Wogan meekly. Jenny laughed derisively. "'O'Toole is the man with the head on his shoulders,' said she. "'And a pitiful calculating head it is,' exclaimed Wogan. "'Think of the inconvenience of your position when you are discovered to-morrow. "'Think of the angry uncle. "'O'Toole has thought of him, and so keeps out of his way.' "'Here's a nice world, where hulking, shapeless giants like O'Toole 
hide themselves from angry uncles behind a dwarf girl's petticoats. Bah, we will go back and kick O'Toole. Wogan rose to his feet. Jenny did not move. She sat and laughed scornfully. You kick O'Toole? You might once, if he happened to be asleep, but he would take you up by the scruff of the neck and the legs and beat your face against your knees until you were dead. Besides, what do I care for an angry uncle? I am well paid to put up with his insults. Well paid, said Wogan with a sneer. A hundred guineas in a damask gown. Three hundred guineas and a gown all lace and gold tags would not be enough. Besides, I'll wager he has not paid you a farthing. He'll cheat you, Jenny. He's a rare bite as O'Toole. Between you and me, Jenny, he is a beggarly fellow. He has already paid me half, cried Jenny. It was no knowledge to Wogan, who, however, counterfeited a deal of surprise. Well, said he, he has only done it to cheat you the more easily out of the other fifty. We will go straight back and tell him that it costs three hundred guineas, money down, and the best gown in Paris to turn a fine figure of a girl into a dwarf bear. He leaned down and took Jenny by the arm. She sprang to her feet and twisted herself free. No, she said, you can go back if you will and show him what a good friend you are to him, but I go on. The poor captain shall have one person in the world, though she's only a servant, to help him when he wants. Thus Wogan won the victory, but he was most careful to conceal it. He walked by her side, humble as a whipped dog. If he had to point out the way, he did it with the most penitent air. When he offered his hand to help her over a snow-heap, and she struck it aside, he merely bowed his head as though her contempt was well-deserved. He even whispered in her ear in a trembling voice, "'Jenny, you will not say a word to O'Toole about the remarks I made of him. He is a strong, hasty man. I know not what might come of it.' Jenny sneered and shrugged her shoulders. She would not speak to Wogan any more, and so they came silently into the avenue of trees between the white chamois and the villa. The windows in the front of the villa were dark, and through the blinding snowstorm Wogan could not have distinguished the position of the house at all but for the red blinds of the tavern opposite, which shone out upon the night and gave the snow falling before them a tinge of pink. Wogan crept nearer to the house and heard the sentinel stamping in the snow. He came back to Jenny and pointed the sentinel out to her. "'Give me a quarter of an hour so far as you can judge. Then pass the sentinel and go up the steps into the house. The sentinel is prepared for your coming, and if he stops you you must say Chateau Du in a whisper, and he will understand. You will find the door of the house open and a man waiting for you.' Jenny made no answer, but Wogan was sure of her now. He left her standing beneath the dripping trees and crept towards the side of the house. A sentry was posted beneath her highness's windows, and through those windows he had to climb. He needed that quarter of an hour to wait for a suitable moment when the sentry would be at the far end of his beat. But that sentry was fuddling himself with a vile spirit distilled from the gentian flower in the kitchen of the white chamois. Wogan, creeping stealthily through the snowstorm, found the side of the house unguarded. The windows on the ground floor were dark. Those on the first floor, which lighted Her Highness's apartments, were ablaze. He noticed with a pang of dismay that one of those lighted windows was wide open to the storm. He wondered whether it meant that the princess had been removed to another lodging. 
he climbed on the sill of the lower window by the side of that window a stone pillar ran up the side of the house to the windows on the first floor wogan had taken note of that pillar months back when he was hawking chattels in innsbruck he set his hands about it and got a grip with his foot against the sash of the lower window he was just raising himself when he heard a noise above him he dropped back to the ground and stood in the fixed attitude of a sentinel a head appeared at the window a woman's head the light was behind within the room so that wogan could not see the face but the shape of the head its gracious poise upon the young shoulders the curve of the neck the bright hair drawn backwards from the brows here were marks wogan could not mistake they had been present before his eyes these many months the head at the open window was the head of the princess wogan felt a thrill run through his blood to a lover the sight of his mistress is always unexpected though he foreknows the very moment of her coming to wogan the sight of his queen had the like effect he had not seen her since he had left olau two years before with her promise to marry the chevalier it seemed to him though for this he had lived and worked up early and down late for so long a miraculous thing that he should see her now she leaned forward and peered downwards into the lane the light streamed out bathing her head and shoulders wogan could see the snow fall upon her dark hair and whiten it it fell too upon her neck but that it could not whiten she leaned out into the darkness and wogan set foot again upon the lower window-sill at the same moment another head appeared beside clementina's and a sharp cry rang out a cry of terror then both heads disappeared, and a heavy curtain swung across the window, shutting the light in. Wogan remained motionless, his heart sinking with alarm. Had that cry been heard? Had the wind carried it to the sentry at the door? He waited, but no sound of running footsteps came to his ears. The cry had been lost in the storm. He was now so near to success that dangers which a month ago would have seemed of small account showed most menacing and fatal. It was the princess-mother who cried out, he thought, and was reminded that the need of persuasions was not ended for the night with the conquest of Jenny. He had to convince the princess-mother of his authority without a line of Prince Sobieski's writing to support him. He had to overcome her timidity, but he was prepared for the encounter, he had foreseen it, and had an argument ready for the princess-mother, though he would have preferred to wring the old lady's neck. Her cry might spoil everything. However, it had not been heard, and since it had not been heard, Wogan was disposed to forgive it. For the window was still open, and now that the curtain was drawn, no ray of light escaped from the room to betray the man who climbed into it. End of chapter 12